open them up to John chapter 15. A new chapter, a glorious chapter, one of my favorite chapters. I've had multiple people tell me this week that this too, John 15, is one of their favorite chapters in the whole of Scripture, so and no pressure. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, but these are going to take us a couple of weeks. Uh, we might just camp in John 15, 1 through 11 for a little while. Let's, let's not rush a good thing. John 15, 1 through 11, page 901. In the Pew Bible, John 15, 1 through 11. An opening disclaimer. I am not a doctor, nor a scientist, nor a nutritionist. Now let's talk about sugar for a second. I love sugar. I blame Melissa. I did not used to have a sweet tooth. I didn't have one at all. Now I do. But it's because sugar's delicious. Right? You can do all sorts of amazing things with it. You can work it into an almost infinite variety of sweet, yummy goodness. Uh, Cookies, donuts, ice cream, milkshake, cake, pie, candy, and so on. Sugar's wonderful. I structure and cycle my eating so that I can have stretches of terrible eating of all of these good things. And I had declared to Melissa last week, it begins February 1st. No more desserts. And then the Palabrica sent us some Levain cookies. So next week, it begins. February 8th, no more desserts. Well, because we know, of course, that too much sugar is a bad thing. And it can be a very bad thing. Much of our country's weight problem is a sugar problem. Diabetes is a dangerous disease that is all about how your body deals with sugar. One of the results being hyperglycemia, high, too much blood sugar. And that's very dangerous. But also, hypoglycemia, too little, too low blood sugar, is quite dangerous. I opened with a Tessa in the hospital illustration on Thursday. It's on my brain because the bills are starting to come in. Um, I'm doing it again uh, today. But this is what they were worried about with Tessa. They came back in with her blood test, and you could tell that the doctor was a little bit unsettled. Say a normal blood sugar level for a kid is something like in the 80s or the 90s. Tessa's was in the 30s. Not good. Uh, This is a measure of how much glucose is in your blood, and glucose is just sugar. You eat foods, mainly carbs, your body breaks that down into glucose, which is then sent into all of your cells as energy. Your body can also use some fats and proteins and convert those to energy, but the brain If I understand this correctly, the brain exclusively uses glucose for energy. So, too little glucose for too long can be very dangerous, particularly for the brain. Brain is pretty important. So this is all fairly scary when they're talking about your four-year-old. And apparently, this is a pretty complicated process. You have to be very careful about getting those levels right and stable again. And the tiny Hickory Hospital, where we were, they just... You could tell they couldn't handle it, and they didn't know what to do. They called over to the big pediatric hospital an hour away. They got some basic directions for the amount and the rate of a glucose drip to get her started. But then they rushed an ambulance over to get us to them where they could better take care of the problem. I, of course, thought this was all a little bit silly. I tried to get them to let me drive her there. I didn't want to have to pay for an ambulance bill. Plus, let's be honest, I could get there faster than the ambulance. But they wouldn't let me do it. Why not? Many reasons, probably. But in large part, it was because of her IV. 
or intravenous. IV is intravenous. Vena, vein, intra literally means within. It means inside. Little Tessa was missing something. She did not have something in her that was central and critical to life. But that little bag of glucose that was outside of her had what she needed. And so as much as she hates shots, I gladly held her down while they put that needle in her arm, uh, left that needle there, connected it to a tube, which connected her to that bag which contained her life. And it was literally then in her. And it was as that glucose slowly got in her over the next 12 hours that my precious little one slowly came back to life. Her only hope was to abide in that little hospital bed so that glucose uh, could abide uh, in her. And that is obviously a very imperfect illustration of what Christ is going to teach us today. There is something missing in us, something that we do not have that is central and critical to life. And life is what we all want and what we all need. Life, quite literally, is everything. But if we are missing the thing that is life, well, then all that we're left with is is death. What can be done about death? Where can this needed life be found? And then once found, well, how do we live out that life? What does that look like uh, within us? How does it flourish and grow and bear fruit? Jesus is going to tell us all of that here in one of the most beautiful and most beloved metaphors in the Bible. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. What does that mean? Well, it means much more than we think. Again, we're going to need a couple of weeks to sort uh, through this. It's, It's too important. I want to start simple. This morning, we're going to focus primarily on verses 1, 4, and 5. Uh, we have two basic two-word points to hopefully help keep us on track as we begin to walk through this wonderful life-giving word. Our points are simply our title in reverse order. I am and then abide in. Uh, the main thing that I want you to see today, whether you are not a Christian or whether you are a longtime believer, is that what you need is a who. You need I am. Everything starts with Christ, the person of Christ, and who he is. Uh, Rebecca dropped a wisdom nugget of gold on us in Sunday school this morning. She was talking about our tendency to trust in the process and not the person. That's helpful. We have this tendency to trust a process not a person. Let's focus this morning primarily on the person in whom everything is found. But then how do we get that who? Well, it's that abiding. This is the key word in this text, repeated ten times in the first ten verses. So the key truth is who Christ is, then the big repeated idea is how we get and gain and rest and live by and through and in Him we abide. So the sermon's quite simple. Life, full, fruitful life is found only as you abide in Christ. That's that's our goal this morning, is to consider those two truths. Let's read it first. John chapter 15. I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 11, though we won't touch on nearly all of it. We're going to focus mainly on the beginning. John 15, 1 through 11. Pay attention. I was reading a book about writing a few days ago, and it said, an author can receive no greater gift than the attention of readers. So let's honor the author of this word with our attention to it. This is what God, the author, wants to say to you today. 
John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let me pray for our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe in your Holy Spirit who works through your word. We believe that your word is the word of eternal life as it reveals to us the Christ who is life. And so as we come before this text this morning that is so clearly about the identity of Christ, our great I am, the vine in whom we find our life, we ask that you would do your work by your spirit uh, through your word. Father, what does it mean to abide in this Christ? Father, give us a great desire to, to know and to understand and to experience life in him and rest and joy and peace. Uh, show us how good and great and big and beautiful he is um, so that we may more and more desire to find our everything in him. Um, Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, I cannot preach this word uh, to any spiritual and lasting effect. And so we ask for your spirit to work in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, point number one, two eternally important words, I Am. This is the who upon which all the what and the why and the when and the how depends. Who is this Christ? Who could and would make such claims? Hey guys, just want to let you know, you can't do anything without me. What arrogance, right? If I were to claim that. That's exactly what Christ is claiming. Why? When chapter 14, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure, he's been comforting them by teaching them, largely teaching them about the coming Holy Spirit, the helper who will be with them forever. Christ also, at the beginning of chapter 14, has promised that he will come back. Well, now the focus is shifting a little bit. Look at the very end of verse 14. We didn't look at this last week. There's a break at the end of chapter 14. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. But it's not entirely clear after that where the teaching and the praying of chapters 15, 16, and 17 take place. It seems like they're still happening in the upper room. 
We will read in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out. And so some people think 1431 is sort of like when I say in a sermon, hey, let me close with this. And then I go on for another 30 minutes, right? Like that kind of thing. Maybe Jesus is doing something like that. I like that interpretation because that means that Jesus does it too. Or it can mean that chapters 15 through 17 are largely happening while they're walking on the way. And then 18.1 refers to their going out of the city into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's hard to say for sure. I lean towards them still being in the upper room in these three chapters. But wherever these chapters take place, there's a clear break and shift between 14 and 15. He has said, I'm leaving. The Holy Spirit will be with you. I will return. 14. Now 15. Okay. What is life in the interim? What will the Christian life between my ascension and my return? What will life in and with the Spirit? What's that going to look like? How should you then live? Let me tell you about life and how to live it. And he begins that discourse by once again directing their focus entirely to him. (laughs) Eyes on me. Remember that crazy article last week on Satanism where we learned that most Satanists don't actually worship Satan. Uh, But they, uh, the self, they worship the self. And there's the quote in the article that says, Satan revolves around the religion of the self. And again, the whole of our culture is increasingly encouraging us in that same religion of the self. Focus on yourself, uh, treat yourself, self-help, self-care. Who are you? Will you be you? Uh, follow your heart. You can be whatever, anything you want to be. You just be you. Right again, the self is at the center of everything. Identity is everything. And Christ here is also saying that identity is everything, but it's his identity. It's that he is the center and that our identity, ultimately, there's only two main identities in the scripture and both are entirely determined by him. And who is he? What is his identity? He is I am. Let me read verse one again. I am the true vine. And then he repeats himself. Verse five. I am the vine. And that, that's the main idea of the passage Right there. Everything else flows from this. I am the vine. And I am not yet tired of these seven I am statements. I hope you're not either. Because again, Christ is at the very center of our faith and life. He claims to be at the very center of the whole of reality. And so his identity really matters. And so he keeps hammering us with this. He keeps teaching us this. Here is who I am. Here is who I am. I am. Am. And we've seen again and again that this is a direct claim of deity. This is Christ claiming to be no mere man, but to be God himself in the flesh. Surely you remember by now, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses saying, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is the Lord. His name is Yahweh, which means I am. He is the one who is. It's been our whole lives trying to understand that. He is the one who is. He is the self-existent, unchanging, immortal, invisible, unknowable God who is the creator and sustainer of all. 
And so when this man, Jesus, shows up and starts speaking of himself as I am, and he is saying, I am that, I am he, I am that God himself. And remember, the people back then understood that he was claiming that. The clearest claim and response is in 858 when Jesus claims, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the people's response, verse 59, they go and pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they understood that he was claiming to be God. They just didn't believe that he actually was God. And so they sought to kill him for the penalty of blasphemy was death. But Jesus knows that, and he won't back down. Remember, seven other times then, he makes similar I am statements. But with these other seven, there is some predicate that follows the claim. Grammar, review, rejoice. Remember, the predicate is the part of a sentence that comes after the subject. A predicate just tells us something about the subject, what it is or what it does. Matthew, subject, is awesome predicate. Matthew's subject is arrogant, right? Predicate, right? So here's the subject, here's the who, and then here's something about the subject. Matthew, subject, should stop talking so much about grammar. Predicate, right? Got it? Subject, predicate. So seven times Jesus has told us who he is. I am subject, and then something that tells us more about who he is, the predicate. Remember them? Remember the common denominator in all seven of them? Let me fly through them one last time. Pay attention. Who is this Jesus? Well, he tells us in these seven statements. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. 8.12, I am the light of the world. 10.7, I am the door. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And today, the seventh and final I am identity statement is 15.1, I am the vine. And I am going to miss reading that list. I didn't go back and check, but I guess I've read through it seven times now. It's, it's still not enough because these claims are so important. Because again, what is each and every one of these statements ultimately about? Each and every one of them is ultimately a claim to be life. Bread is life. Light is life. The door is the entrance to life. The good shepherd lays down his life so that we might live the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And a vine is life. So Christ is not just life. He is life, 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 seven times. Completeness. He is fullness of life. And he does not want you to miss this. And John, in his uh, constructing and writing of this gospel, could not have done much more to clearly communicate that Jesus is the Christ who is life. You are seeking life somewhere in everything that you do. Every thought, every word, every choice, every action is oriented around towards you. You're seeking life somewhere. John is desperate to communicate to you as clearly as he can that it will be found only in the Christ. I am who is life. And it's this last statement. It's this, this, this one's unique. It's this extended 
metaphor. He unpacks this one a little bit more than he does uh, the other one. And he, he, but he's trying to communicate the same thing. A vine is life. It is a living thing. Jesus says, that's what I am, the life. A branch only gets its life as it is connected to the vine, abides in the vine. We're the branches. Thus, we only get our life as we are connected to Christ. So just like all seven other statements, uh, I am here is all about life. But we find ourselves, as we just said, caught up and consumed in the culture of the self that can't help but infect and influence and, and, and direct our attention to ourself at times. The therapeutic has triumphed. That inward turn and emphasis on self dominates. And as a result, we also tend to read all of these statements and to read most of the Bible individually, somewhat with that self-focus. And it is here that this seventh statement is somewhat unique and particularly helpful because Christ is doing something slightly differently here. So Jesus is not just Mike Murraying this and coming up with some really random, obscure illustration that's brilliant. You're like, where did that come from? What does that have to do with anything? But it works. No, that's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus claims not to just be the vine, but the true vine. For he knows that there is already much content and meaning in this metaphor of the vine. We talked back when we studied the book of Revelation, also written by John, about basic principles for interpreting that difficult book. And I argued that the first principle of interpretation, when you come to the book of Revelation, must be the key to understanding the whole book is to remember that the book of Revelation is just chocked full of the Old Testament. You cannot understand Revelation without the Old Testament. Well, it's no different here with the vine. Because the vine in the Old Testament is something very specific. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus is picking up on that. Let's consider a few key passages. Let's start with Isaiah. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 5, page 569. There's a ton of these. I just want to look at a few. Isaiah 5, 569. In the next chapter, Isaiah is about to see the glory of the Lord. The Son, again, I think it's Jesus before the incarnation. Um, Isaiah is going to be called to preach judgment. Well, we're getting a little bit of a taste of that judgment here in chapter 5. Look at Isaiah 5, verse 1. This is God speaking. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Here it is, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Very clearly there, the vineyard is 
Israel. A few pages later, Jeremiah 2.21. If you want to see it, just one verse, so you don't have to turn there. Page 6.28. Jeremiah 2.21. God, again speaking to Israel. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? One more. Flip backwards to Psalm 80. 491. This is probably the most important one. I want you to look at this one. Psalm 80. Page 491, Psalm 80. You'll see the title in the ESV just taken out of verse 7. It's a call to God to restore Israel. Look at verse 8. Psalm 80, verse 8. It's speaking to the Lord. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Stop. But don't leave Psalm 80 yet. We're going to come back to that in a second. In the following verses, Asaph is going to go on to lament what has happened to Israel. What has happened to the vine that represents Israel. And so the point for now is simply that the vine was specifically a symbol for the nation of Israel. I mentioned back in chapter 12 and the so-called triumphal entry that maybe we shouldn't use palm branches in our celebration of Palm Sunday. Well, because the palm branch had a very specific symbol at that time. The palm branch was a symbol of the fact that the people misunderstood who Christ is as the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism at the time. And so we find that palm branch printed on coins from the Jewish revolt in the 7th century, a few decades after Jesus. Not the 7th century, uh, sorry, the 7th decade of the 1st century. Well, we also have some ancient Jewish coins from that same time, and then shortly after, during the second revolt, and the back of the coins is a vine, and it's a cluster of grapes on the coin. Like the eagle serving as a symbol for the United States, so too was the vine and grapes a symbol of the nation of Israel. And the Jewish people used that symbol because they understood that's how the Hebrew Scriptures used the symbol. For them, Israel is the vine. Now hear Christ's words in light of that. I am the true vine. Again, no wonder. They did not like Jesus. The vine very clearly represented Israel in the Old Testament, but almost every time the metaphor is used, it's used negatively. We just heard Jeremiah call Israel a degenerate vine, a wild vine. It's used almost exclusively to communicate that Israel has failed to be what it was meant to be. And since a vine is life, since a vine is meant to produce sugary, sweet, delicious grapes... Fruit, which was then made into sweet, delicious wine, another symbol in the Old Testament of blessing and fullness, that means that Israel failed to be life. Israel failed to be fruitful. It failed to bring about blessing and fullness. For whom? For the world. What I'm trying to emphasize here, simply, is that Christ's claim is far bigger than we think that it is. Back to the very beginning, what did God create? He created life. What did he create us for? Eternal, abundant, abundant life. And he warned Adam, 2.17, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Implication, 
Well, if you obey, if you don't eat from it, if you uh, follow me and trust me and find your identity and your joy in me and love me, you will live. And we know that was the promise because there was another tree. There was the tree of life, representing the blessing that God wanted to give, representing what we were made for, abundant, eternal life with him who is the God of life. But they sinned, and death rushed in, entered the world through their sin. But the all-powerful God of life would not allow death to ruin his plan of life. And so right away, we know Genesis 3.15, that, that first note, that first word of good news and grace. God promises that one would come to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, the, the agent of death. Then in Genesis 12, God makes another promise, more grace. He saves and calls Abram out of his paganism, and he promises that he would bless Abram. Why? So that Abram would be a blessing. That in Abram, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then in Genesis 15:1, we find that the blessing is the gift of God himself. God says, I am your very great reward. So the blessing is covenant with God, relationship with God, communion, fellowship with the God who is life. And then we know that God further promises that he is going to bring this about through a people, through the nation that God is going to create out of Abraham, the father of Israel. And so God says to them right before he gives them his good law, Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What's, what's a priest? Yeah, a priest is a, it's a mediator. A priest goes between God and man. A priest is a minister of God's blessing and God's presence. And God says to Israel, that is what you are to be and do. It is through you that I will bless the nations. It is through you, Israel, that I will bring the promised life. That's why vine is such an appropriate symbol for what Israel was supposed to be. Life, blessing, and joy, and the means of that to all the other branches. But you can't read the Old Testament for long without being somewhat overwhelmed by one of the main themes of all 39 books, which is Israel's utter failure to be what it was meant to be. And so go back to Psalm 80. Finally, thank you for meandering with me through the whole Old Testament. Back to Psalm 80. Look at verse 12. Again, here's more what has happened. Israel's walls are broken down. Verse 13, it has been ravaged. Verse 16, it has been burned with fire, cut down. Now look at verse 14. This is why Psalm 80 is probably the most important of the vine references. Psalm 80, verse 14. Again, this is Asaph speaking to the Lord on behalf of Israel. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Here it comes. And for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. Skip to verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Why is that psalm so important? 
Well, how is it that God will give them life? Again, in some mysterious way, only implied and hinted at here, it's somehow through this man, through this son of man, this individual, I love the phrase, this man of your right hand. Right? The right hand is strength. I can curl a lot more with my right arm than I can with my left arm. Right? right means strength. So here is this man of strength, this man of God's strength. And so what we have here in Psalm 80 is that we see coming together Israel's failure as the fruitful vine of the Lord, and at the same time Israel's hope in this Son of Man through whom the Lord will somehow give them life. And so back to John 15, when Christ all of a sudden claims, I am the true vine. He's taking all of that into account and more. He is claiming to be all that Israel was meant to be, to fulfill all that Israel was meant to do, to succeed entirely where Israel failed completely. And since it was through Israel, this nation, that God intended to bring the blessing of himself, his presence and life, Jesus is here claiming that he is the means. And he is the only means through which God brings the blessing of himself, his presence, and his life. I am all that Israel was intended to be, and I am that perfectly and fully and completely so. And so what we have here is actually a whole lot of overlap with chapter 14, verse 6. Here's a beautiful metaphor illustrating what he explained there. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And since the Father is life, and since in His presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, Christ is claiming to be the only way and the entire way that you will find those things. We're simply trying to begin with seeing how big I am is. It's, it's the who that we need. It's the person that we need. And so, yes, your individual personal life is entirely dependent upon him and how you respond to him. We'll consider that in a moment. But I really want us to see here is how everything is entirely dependent upon him. He's not just claiming to save each and every one of us individually. He's claiming that he is the means of God's blessing, which is God himself uh, coming back, entering in, making all things new, life itself overwhelming and crowding out and ending death. Christ says, I am that for the world, for, for the whole of reality. And that means that apart from him, there's nothing. That means that apart from him, you can do nothing. Look at verse 5. Jesus says precisely that. We're back to John 15, verse 5. You know, we should be jumping around in this text for months. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now again, read that in context. What does that mean? Christ is the main idea, always. Our next point is abide. Clearly a key idea in the text as the word is repeated ten times. But then there's another hard-to-miss repetition. Six times in these first ten verses, Jesus says something about bearing fruit. And then twice more in verse 16. We're going to define more clearly what that is next time. But again, the one big idea of this whole section is pretty clear. It's only in Christ, through abiding in Christ, that we are able to bear fruit. That's John 15, basically. 
But the point for now is that the nothing apart from Christ that we can do has to be related to that, that bearing fruit. Because let's be honest, mankind is able to do all kinds of things apart from Christ. And some of those things are pretty amazing. Some of them even appear good from the surface. Man can build Babel-like towers that reach to the heavens. Man can create machines that fly in those heavens. Man can create these tiny little chips and they can put them in this small little box that connect and communicate with giant machines that are floating around our entire world up in space, giving you access to the whole history of information at the touch of a button. You use it to watch TikTok videos. (laughs) Come on, amazing. Needless to say, man can do all kinds of something apart from Christ. But the one thing, the something that Christ is talking about, we can do nothing. Nothing related to or relevant in any way to the life, the spiritual eternal life that is found only in and through him. Sure, man can do all kinds of something. But what Jesus is saying here is that all of that something ultimately is nothing apart from him. That's why chapter 15 of our confession, Good Works, points out rightly that works of the unsaved, the unregenerate, however relatively good they may look, they don't come from a heart purified by faith. They're not done in a right manner according to God's word. They're not done with the right goal of God's glory. See that in verse 8. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God in anything and everything that they do. That's what Jesus means with apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of lasting spiritual value. Nothing that is ultimately and spiritually good. For it all flows from and through him. I I can very easily preach a sermon without Christ. I can probably somewhat entertain you and somewhat keep your attention and somewhat convince you that this was kind of okay. I can preach a sermon apart from Christ. But I can do nothing to effectively and spiritually actually communicate God's word and truly preach and exposit God's word and connect it to your heart, I cannot even come close to doing that apart from Christ. So again, there's all kinds of things that we can do apart from Christ. The things that matter, the eternal, spiritual things. We can do none of those things apart from him. Uh, C.T. Studd, what a great name, right? Great cricket player turned to missionary, uh, English guy, a man who came from great money and privilege, gave it all up, gave his life to missions. He, he died on a field uh, in the Congo. His famous line is probably more famous than he is. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Because he is, I am. Yeah, I am is everything. Yeah, I simply want us to see how big I am is. There is no life. There is no good rightly understood apart from him. We can have no life. We can do no good rightly understood apart from him. Is your life, is your response to this Christ, I am in any way, the barest hint of a reflection of how big and good and glorious he is? And so how do we respond 
to him? How do we begin to find our life in him and so bear fruit? Well, point number two, clearly, quickly, abide in. We will give this much more attention next time. I want to give our attention just briefly here to the objective aspect of abiding today. I want to give a whole lot of attention to the subjective aspect of abiding next time. But I also want you to give attention to that word attention. I want you to think of abide in terms of attention. Abide attention. Connect those words and think of those together. Abide attention. I, just, I can't get away from Hebrews 2.1. And I think it's especially important these days of distraction. In our age either of the self, where we give attention to ourself, or if it's the age of the screen, where we give attention to ourselves through a screen, you know, we desperately need this word, Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And surely I am is deserving of our attention. I quoted earlier the line from a book on writing, an author can receive no greater gift than the attention of his readers. Right, how much more than the author of life? And so, think in part of abide in terms of attention. That'll be especially for, for next time. But what are you giving your attention to? Let me read for you verses 4 and 5 again. Pay attention to this. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide. Ten times in a few short verses. What does it mean? Well, look back at chapter 14 for a second. Look at verse 25 of chapter 14. I don't know if this is intentional. I don't know. I found this interesting. Look at chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus says there, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Where you see those words, still with, it's our same word for abide. The word in the Greek is meno, just M-E-N-O. It means to remain. Jesus said, I spoke these words to you while I remain with you. Same word. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. Now Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. You know him for he dwells, same word, for he abides with you and will be in you. Last one, look at verse 10. This is a huge verse for understanding this concept. John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells, same word, the Father who abides in me, does his works. And so to abide most simply just means to remain or to stay or to dwell. And I find it fascinating that in the previous three uses of the word, we find it applied to each of the Father and the Son and the Spirit abiding in some way. I don't know if there's anything to that, but I think it's interesting. Well, Jesus is further explaining by way of illustration what he means uh, with what he said in 1420. I am in my father and you in me and I in you. With this metaphor, this illustration of this vine, he is further explaining to us our eternally precious union 
with Christ. And I want to give the subjective side of this again, the experience of this a whole week. Next time, Jesus is talking about something living and vital here, something close and intimate. It is a true knowing and being known. It is the very thing that we were made for, communion with God himself. It is to abide, it is to be and remain in him. It is to be and remain in his love, verse 10. To be and remain in his joy, verse 11. This is a truth that we must know. This is an experience in which we must grow. To abide in him is to rest in him, is to draw near to him, is to hold fast to him and to increasingly find rest for our souls and enjoyment in his presence. Sound crazy? Sound a little too good to be true? Sound a a little too mystical? I'm probably the least mystical person in this room. But what if, again, again and again and again, Psalm 16, what if in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures Forevermore. And what if we have an access to at least a taste, at least a, a bit, a part of that now? Shouldn't we consider that carefully? Shouldn't we pursue that passionately? Pray for the weeks to come. Pray for my enjoyment of the Lord so that I can better communicate that and help you in your enjoyment of the Lord. We pursue things with great zeal that we find of great Value. There's nothing more valuable than this. What does that mean to abide in him? Next time. But I said objective first. Let me close with the objective. 30 minutes. Let me close with the objective. It's a joke. Look at verse 3. This will actually be quick. How does this happen? Verse 3, Jesus has said, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remember, Jesus has just washed their feet. He has just cleaned their feet, giving them a picture of this, giving a picture uh, to them of what his word does as it cleanses, as it saves. First uh, Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Well, how? Through the living and abiding, same word, word of God. That's huge. That's amazing. We are born again. That means dead life. The most supernatural, miraculous thing that happens. A dead soul becomes alive. God's word says quite clearly that it happens through the word. The abiding word. It's as that word abides. The Hebrews 4.12, living and active word. The word of the spirit of truth, 14.17. The word of the word made flesh, 1.1. The word of the God who spoke the world and life itself into existence by that word. What a word it must be. We have to stop minimizing this word, whether explicitly or implicitly. The church today has little problem with the clarity and authority and necessity of the word. It's the sufficiency of the word that the church struggles with today. Is it enough? Is it all that you need? Well, what if it is the word of God who gives life to the world? What if it is the word of the God who gives life to our dead hearts by this very word? Why would we look for another word? And so first and foremost, quite simply, to abide is to believe. 
God's word. John 8, 58, Jesus rebukes the Jews. You do not have God's word abiding, same word. You do not have God's word abiding in you. How does he know that? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the the most important question is, do you believe in the one whom God has sent? Jesus, the Christ, the word made flesh, who gave that flesh, who died in the place of sinners so that we could live. Have you repented of your sin and believed in the son who has life? That is how you abide. First and foremost, you abide through faith. The good news of the gospel is that God has done everything that needs to be done to save us from our sin and death. Nothing is left, not not anything, not a single stitch. Remember Spurgeon, if I have to put a single stitch in the garment of salvation, I'll ruin the whole thing. No, Christ does it all. And then he reveals it all through the word. And then he applies it all to our hearts by the spirit. Believe and abide and live through and in him. And then you go on living and abiding in him. How? The same way that you began. Look at verse 7. And I'm actually done. If you abide in me, how, Jesus, and my words abide in you. That's how. Disappointing? Oh, don't let it be. Guys, guys, words are life. My life has been changed and transformed by the repeated and patient and kind and loving words of my wife. The words of constant encouragement uh, from my father. The the words of uh, of overwhelming affection from my daughters. These are just words. Words are wonders. Our words, our lips have the power of life in them. And it's that as those words take up residence within us, they, they abide in us, And then as they, they do their work, they change our thinking and our mind. They, they shape and they mold, they transform and drive. So it's side note, tangent application. Please use those powerful words of yours wisely. Use them well for the building up of others. I'm such a negative, biting person. I, I hate it. Uh, it's changing, I think, by the grace of God, slowly. Uh, because I see how wonderful and good God's Words are. I see what it means to be built up and encouraged and for others to use words positively and well for the good of others. Let's use our words well for the building up of the body and of the church. But that's secondary. If all that's true, if our words can do that, how much more than God's word? These words abide in him by letting those words abide in you. Wash over and fill and and get in you and do their work. Again, that means first and foremost, quite simply, you've got to get them in you. Take them in however you can. Read it. Read a verse. I don't care if you read the whole Bible in a year. I don't care how much. Read it. Write it down. Take it with you. If you're not a reader, fine. Listen to the word. Kristen Getty does all the hymns. Best Irish voice in the world. You can listen to her all the time. She reads the whole Bible. Let Kristen Getty read the Bible to you in that wonderful Irish accent. Not being a reader is not an excuse. Listen to the word. 
Pause what you're doing at some point throughout your day and just give your attention to that word. Abide attention. Give your attention to the things of God. Use the Psalms, which are the inspired prayers and experiences of God's people. Do something with the word of Christ, for apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And he's found here. He is found in here. And it is through this, by the Spirit, living and active word, that he is in you. And that he is with you. And that means huge and wonderful and sometimes unspeakable things. But it means nothing without this. You abide in him through his words of life. He is I am. And there's nothing, there's nothing that Yahweh God, the great I am, cannot do. He is what and who we should want for he is life. He's life far fuller and richer and longer, eternally longer than whatever else you may be pursuing your life and your happiness in. Pursue it in him. Like precious little Tessa, we were all missing something in us necessary for life. It's in him. And it's in him entirely and fully. The thing that we are missing is always ultimately him through our lack of of trust in Him. He really is everything and all that we need if we would just pursue Him and call out to Him and grow ever so slowly in our trust in Him. He is present. And He works through His living Word. And He offers Himself to us. And He offers to us full life if we will only come to Him and believe and abide and rest and live. If you would bow with me, let me let me close this time with a word of prayer. Father Christ calls and commands and invites us to abide in Him here in this word. Father, thank you for such a gracious and kind invitation. Thank you that you offer us access to your very person and presence. Himself. But Father, you offer that only through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, you offer that only as we come through him by faith. And Father, faith so largely expresses itself in prayer. And so we are asking you now to help us to do these things. And Father, we want to abide. We need you to help us to abide in Christ. We need you to open our eyes to his beauty and to his glory his grace, and his goodness. We need you to increasingly convince us that he is everything and that we will find nothing apart from him and outside of him. Father, forgive me for how quick I am to look for other things, for that little shot of joy or happiness that I'm not finding where it needs to be found. Help us to more and more find our everything in Christ. Father, we thank you that he is far bigger and better than our weak faith. Thank you that it is a weak and little faith that can connect us to a, a big and powerful Christ. So now we simply ask that you would work by your spirit through your wonderful and living and active word and do that uh, to draw us to Jesus. We ask all in his name. Amen.